I'm Kevin Flores, editor and co-founder of Forth.org, and you're listening to Back and Forth, a monthly show where we highlight the work published on Forth.org. You'll hear conversations between Forth writers and photographers, and the experts, advocates, and community members featured in our articles. For those who haven't heard of us, Forth is a fully independent, not-for-profit media outlet that serves Long Beach. The publication has been run for the last three and a half years by a collective of journalists, essayists, poets, and community organizers. It's really a big experiment in local grassroots media. And we've got a great show for y'all today. I'll be talking to Long Beach country musician Katie Jo about her upcoming album, Pawn Shop Queen, set to be released on April 9th. But before that, editor Aaron Foley spoke with longtime women's rights advocate and Long Beach resident Zoe Nicholson about the Equal Rights Amendment. The Equal Rights Amendment, or ERA as it's commonly known, states that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. But almost 100 years after it was first brought before Congress, it has still not been ratified which leaves women out of the Constitution other than where referenced in regard to the 19th Amendment, which did allow women to vote. It was eventually passed in 1971 with a stipulation that 38 states must ratify it within seven years in order for it to be officially added to the Constitution. It is the only amendment ever given a time limit. In 1977, the deadline was extended to June 1982 after pressure from activists, but that day would come and go without 38 states having ratified it. Longtime activist and Long Beach elder Zoe Nicholson published the second edition of her The Hungry Heart, A Woman's Fast for Justice in 2019, which is a diary from her experience as an activist in the 40 days prior to the 1982 deadline. Today, she joins us to talk about this important subject in women's history and the recent women legislators in Nevada, Illinois, and Virginia that have helped bring it back to the forefront. Thank you for joining me to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment. I know you've been actively pushing for its passing for quite some time. And in a recent op-ed, you said that the Equal Rights Amendment has been misunderstood, ignored, and treasured since 1923. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you mean and what you think maybe has been most misunderstood? I'm going to tell you the nonsense, and then I'm going to tell you the fact. Here's the nonsense. The nonsense is that it's going to affect reproduction choice, that it's going to affect women in combat and the draft, which, you know, we don't even have a draft anymore. So uh, it has to do with they are looking for any possible reason to cover up the real reason. And there is only one reason why equality of rights under the law would not be uh, in any way affected by gender, which is what the ERA essentially says, is that everyone would be treating exactly the same in the context of the United States Constitution, is because women make up the cheapest workforce on the face of the earth. So now I'm going to give you, uh, you know, uh, some background on the ERA. And, uh, you know, I, I know it sounds like I'm going to start at the Dark Ages, but trust me, I, it isn't that long a story. When Alice Paul was a senior at Swarthmore, um, she was the daughter of a banker. They were very, they weren't posh, but they were stable. They were well off. They were privileged. They were Quaker. She grew up in a home without music, but with abolition and with 
gender equality. Um, and her senior year, she spent at a settlement house in lower Manhattan, which is still there, by the way. It's the cover of a Beastie Boys album, Riverton, Rivington. And it's in a couple of, um, Gaga's songs. And in fact, the, there's a very famous picture of her with the Rivington Rebels, uh, a group of guys wearing leather jackets on the back that said Rivington Rebels. Anyway, I use those kinds of things to let you know this isn't old. This isn't gone. This is now. This is us. When Alice was there, she had an epiphany that social work, all the classes and all the social work and all the help you can give is never going to help people rise out of poverty until there is equal justice under the law in the Constitution of this country. She was 19, she was 20, 1906, she was 21. After the vote in 1920, August 26, 1920, she began law school and got three law degrees so she could write the Equal Rights Amendment. And in 1923, on the 75th anniversary of Seneca Falls, she presented the Equal Rights Amendment. Equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state on account of sex. Now, today, you and I might want the word gender, but that was 1923. Give the woman a break. Um, And she began working on it and continued to do so through her entire life. So in 1923, she presented it to Congress And every single Congress that has sat down since that time has had an equal rights amendment in front of them. Every time. And on March 22nd, 1971, the United States Senate voted. The House already had because the House represents the people and the people, they vote for such things. And, of course, then it goes over to the Senate where the plantation owners are. And um, they um, had hearings in February, January, February, on the Equal Rights Amendment. And um, lots of people whom you've heard of were testifying in those hearings, Gloria Steinem, Eleanor Smeal, um, and in particular, uh Bernie Sandler, the mother of Title IX. But you have to remember that those three people were very young. And Miss um, Paul actually lived right across the street at 144 Constitution Avenue. They ran across the street to tell Alice that uh, on March 22nd, 1971, Congress passed the Equal Rights Amendment to go out to the states for ratification. The requirement would be 38 states. And Miss Paul answered the door. She famously answered the door. Every woman I ever talked to said it. Alice opened her own door. Alice just looks at them somberly and says, did they attach a deadline? And they say, yes, they did. And Alice says, It will never pass. Because she knew 
that they could go get 12 states, 20 states, 30 states, 37 states. But in the deadline of seven years, which is what it was, they would never get 38 because all they had to do was stop the 38. The rest didn't matter. How do they even justify the deadline if there's no deadline for any other amendment? Do they even try to justify it? Well, first of all, it's not actually part of the amendment. The amendment is actually three sentences long, each sentence being a numbered part of the amendment, one, two, three. Um, It was an addendum, which means the reason that's important is that Congress attached it because they're patriarchs is the answer to your question very particularly, but um, I don't think they're owning that. Um, but it, because Congress put it in there, Congress can take it out, which is what all the brouhaha is about right now as we live and breathe. So yeah. they didn't ask Alice to testify, and of course Alice was right. It did not pass. 10,000 women marched at seven years and Congress gave them like a, oh, I don't know, a peanut. They gave uh, an extension. Here, ladies, here's a peanut of three years and three months, which led the deadline to June 30th, 1982. And what changed? Why is the ERA alive? And here's why. Because an African-American military veteran, cis female lesbian in four or five years ago decided that she was going to get a majority of women in the state legislature in the state of Nevada. Her name is State Senator Pat Spearman, and if there is any woman who deserves to be lifted in our country right now in regards to equality under the law, I'm going to say her name again for you. State Senator Pat Spearman. Nevada passed the Equal Rights Amendment in 2017. On the anniversary of the Senate sending it out, March 22nd. And uh, that's really significant, March 22nd. So Nevada became the 36th state, and here's how this worked. They voted for it. Their state attorney certified their vote and sent it to the archivist, and the archivist published it. That's how it works. The archive in Washington, D.C. is where the Constitution is, where all the documents are. I know one would think they're in Philadelphia, but the National Archive is in Washington, D.C., in 2018, Illinois resurrected the ERA on the heels of Nevada, voted for it. Their state attorney certified it. They sent it to the archivist. The archivist published it. Now we have 37 states. And here's what happened in Virginia, and this is just so important. If you hear nothing else, I was in the balcony at the time. In Richmond, Virginia, in the State House, a preponderance of women were elected and they passed the first day the Equal Rights Amendment and it became the 30th state. 
the Attorney General certified it, sent the papers to the archivist. Donald Trump called Bill Barr. Bill Barr called the archivist and said, do not certify. And that's why we don't have 38 states, and that's why it hasn't been uh, done. And that's why we're where we are right now historically at this moment. I would be remiss to not bring up your book while we're talking. Um, one of your books um, that I read was The Hungry Heart, A Woman's Fast for Justice. And it's your diary from the time you spent 37 days fasting for equality of rights under the law in the U.S. And you posted up in the rotunda of the Illinois Capitol from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. every day, I believe, um, from May 14th to June 24th. And this was in Springfield, Illinois. Um, so what inspired you to fast in the first place? And how did you keep going despite experiencing alarming health issues and the vitriol that was directed at you? And when did you decide you would publish a book about the experience? Did you know writing the diary that you would publish it later? I owned a book- bookstore in Newport Beach, which is now Alta Coffee Shop at 506 31st Street. If you want to go there, it's a wonderful coffee shop. I don't know if they're I, – I, I sure hope they're still open Um but I built a bookstore there in 1976, and in 1981, Sonia Johnson came through the bookstore on a, a, a signing tour because she had just written her book, From Housewife to Heretic. She'd just been on the cover of Ms. Magazine. She was all the talk. So anyway, when Sonia was at the bookstore, she stayed in my house, house I, in my one-bedroom apartment over the bookstore, I said to her, uh, whatever you're going to do for the deadline of the ERA in eight months, I, the answer is yes, I will be there. Tell me what it is. I don't care. Call me anytime. You don't have to check with me. You don't have to double back and say, what do you think of? You call me. You tell me what it is. I will be there. The answer is yes. And she called me in late April of 1982 and said, Zoe, it's going to be a fast. I will tell you where we're meeting and the date later. I don't know yet. And I just said, the answer is yes, I will be there. And I hung up the phone. You asked me something really interesting. Did I know at the time that I was going to publish it or it would be anybody else would read it? And the answer is absolutely not. I used that book as a shield to look like I was busy so people would leave me alone. It's very difficult to sit in public when you haven't had anything to eat and you just want to tell everybody to F off. You know, the the legislature in Springfield were freaking out. And yay, yay, freak out. Please freak out. That We need you to freak out. That's why we do what we do. And, uh, you know, Sonia fell off her wheelchair three times and went to the hospital. And two other women, one woman's lung collapsed and... That's exactly what's supposed to happen. Amen to that. I'm kind of wishing we were more uh, problematic. Now we need, the next step is to watch Biden uh, get rid of the filibuster. And um, if we don't get rid of the filibuster and don't get the Voting Rights Act, if we do get the filibuster, let's go positive, right? Mm-hmm. I'd rather. So let's end on this, that when the filibuster is dismantled and um, the Voting Rights Act will be passed immediately, thank goodness, um, the ERA will fall like a, a lovely apple off a tree where it has grown since 1920. Then we'll have 
equal rights under the law for everyone. Thank you so much, Zoe. You have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. Nicholson also has a one-woman show called Tea with Alice and Me, based on her knowledge of Alice Paul, the original author of the Equal Rights Amendment, and the influence Miss Paul has had on her and the United States. You can find her online at zoenicholson.com. You're listening to KLBP 99.1 FM, Long Beach Public Radio. After the break, we'll talk to local country musician Katie Joe, who's dropping a new album next week. Stay tuned. Back and forth on KLBP 99.1 FM. Local country musician Katie Joe is gearing up to release her new album Pawn Shop Queen on April 9th. Two singles from the album released last month were featured on Forth.org's Bandcamp picks for March, and she's here with me now to talk about her music and the stories behind it. Hi, and welcome to the show, Katie Joe. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, we really love the singles you've released so far uh, for Pawn Shop Queen. Um, so I guess for starters, could you tell us where the name of the album came from? Yeah, so the name of the album um, is uh, just comes from the name of the title track. Uh, so I think it's the fourth or fifth track on the album. It's called Pawn Shop Queen. And that is a phrase that I had like knocking around in my head for a long time. And it's something that I always wanted to write a song about. And uh, at the time I was kind of going through relationship troubles as many people do and uh, was thinking about this concept of when things are, when you're broken down and sort of discarded and you feel kind of worthless um, and equating that to 
these things that are just kind of cast aside and recycled in pawn shops and really wanted to make a connection there with that metaphor. So that's kind of the, the, um, the central theme of the album and uh, really just thought it was kind of an interesting phrase to use for a song title and uh, just kind of made sense um, as I was putting the album together to use that as the, as the title. Yeah, and, and the title track uh, of the album, it, it deals with a lot with trauma and um, the mental health fallout that comes with it. Well, was it difficult to sort of talk about these vulnerable themes? Um, was it something that just kind of flowed out of you or, or, or was it, uh, you know, that you have to do a lot of like emotional mining? I, you know, I'm someone that it takes me a long time to process emotions when it comes to songwriting. So at the point that I wrote that song, you know, I had already kind of gone through the internal processing of the vulnerabilities you hear in the song and the whole album. So, and songwriting, songwriting is a way to kind of step step out of that and almost see yourself as a character and those emotions as, uh, although they're intense, you know, really um, find strength in turning them into, uh, you know, a piece of art or a song. Um, so it, that song I actually wrote really quickly and um, really, I don't know, just kind of drew on those emotions, but knew I wanted to turn it into what you hear on the record, which is sort of this big kind of anthem sounding song. Um, and it was a really great way for me to, I think in the process of writing and recording that song sort of overcome those emotional valleys that you hear in the lyrics, you know, it really became a triumphant act for me. So I knew that going into writing or at least recording the song, um, but it is, it is hard. It is difficult um, as a songwriter to open yourself up uh, emotionally to strangers. Uh, it's definitely scary, but I think I had done a lot of the internal land emotional landscaping work uh if you want to call it that um prior to releasing this so in a way it's i'm kind of an open book and you know these are things that happened to me and shaped my life and shaped my song so i uh I, you know you just have to be authentic about that and sort of you know what you see is what you get i think with this album and the songs from this album that I've listened to so far, they have such a warm atmospheric quality to them. So I'm wondering what inspirations did you draw upon while you're creating the album? Yeah, we, you know, I went into the recording process really drawing inspiration from classic country singers like Loretta Lynn and Patsy Cline. Um, but also there's a bit, I think of an edge that we wanted to add to the songs. Um, so if you consider, like rockabilly artists like Wanda Jackson um, and even Johnny Cash, like those inspirations sort of helped shape the sound, the recording sounds that we wanted to capture. And I think the, um, the most exciting part for me was we recorded, all of the instrumentation was recorded live in the same room with the same, uh, you know, same group of session musicians. So I was sitting directly across from the guitar player, the pedal steel player, um, there was very little like barrier in between, like sonic barrier and just like physical barrier between um, everyone who played on the record. So I think that really contributed to that warm sound you hear is it wasn't really overthought, you know, very little overdubs. It's just, you know, we just wanted to capture that feeling of people putting emotion into music and playing live. And uh, country music is historically 
um, been dominated by men, you know, like so many other genres. So, and so I think that's led to an overrepresentation of men's struggles in country music. But you're, you really flip the script uh, in many of your songs and, and centered a woman's perspective. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, I'm actually really glad you brought that up because that's something I thought a lot about when I was preparing to speak about the stories behind these songs because you hear, yeah, in a lot of country music, you know, especially in this whole vein of like outlaw country, vices are celebrated, you know, someone having uh, struggles with alcoholism, you know, people cheating, um, gambling, like all of these what are objectively like pretty terrible actions on the part of the singer or the um, or the performer are almost lauded. You know, we kind of look up to um, people who have their struggles and it makes for great music. You know, it's it, pain, you know, I, I can attest to that pain really um, can drive creation. Um, but you're right. It's always sort of been centered on the male perspective. And although there's a fair share of heartbreak songs on this record, you know, I think the women's experience um, has been overlooked or sort of categorized, you know, as uh, let's just sing about heartbreak. Let's just sing about uh, this or that, but yeah, talking about like women's reproductive rights in a country album um, is uh, still a bit controversial. You know, you do have songs like Loretta Lynn's The Pill, but those things, those are controversial at the time and are still, um, you know, still talked about. So I really wanted, um, you know, this album isn't like a series of um, facts about things that have happened to me, but I did want it to open up a conversation of, um, there are, you know, women performing and listening to country music, like, let's talk more in depth about, you know, what that experience is like, and what are these issues that women deal with that you may not hear in a, certainly not in a mainstream country song. Um, so yeah, it was absolutely like important to me to uh, talk about this, because I didn't really, like, hear anybody else talking about it, uh, to that kind of level of detail. Yeah, and writing about these themes, did, have you received any kind of pushback, you know, um, or 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 any you know anybody telling you, oh, this 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 kind of music isn't, you know, this this these kinds of lyrics don't belong in country? Um, no, uh, it is a bit of a risk because you know, country music, um, for better or for worse, has this stereotype of having a very conservative fan base. And certainly uh, it's a fear to put yourself out there like that. Um, but I, I always have approached making this kind of music like, I want this kind of music to reach people that A, have gone through similar things or don't think they like country music, but when they hear the music, they relate to it. You know, I think there's just such a wide, a, a much broader and more diverse fan base uh, within country music than people realize. So there's a huge push, you know, to have just diverse voices um, and move away from the kind of white dude with a beard wearing a cowboy hat as the uh, pinnacle of what country music is. Like, that's just not the reality. When you go to country music shows, yeah, you'll see a lot of people like that, but, uh, you know, you'll be surprised, especially out here in California, um, you know, the types of people that, that um, support and want to listen to this kind of music. And what I wasn't hearing was really a lot of those perspectives being actually talked about or like promoted. Um, and 
I, I, I approach it like any pushback I get doesn't really matter. Like I've already had this reckoning with myself and the people I'm close to in my life. So there's almost kind of nothing a stranger could say to me that would really hurt my feelings. Like, yeah, I've gotten like a few trolls online, but trolls are going to troll. <laughs> you, know? Um, you know, I just take it like people can listen to music. They can take whatever they want out of it. You know, that's sort of the point of music. Um, I'm not here to like change anybody's mind about uh, sort of these hot button issues. But I what I hope happens is that, you know, someone out there that maybe didn't listen to country music going through something similar or in the past uh, can say, hey, this is a song I relate to. Um, I, you know, I haven't heard this before, heard someone talking about this before, and I feel less alone. You know, I think about when I was writing these songs, that's, you know, I would have really loved to have that. So um, I always say I'm like not making country music for people that already listen to country music. It's for, you know, a wider variety of people that uh, want to relate to the music and, and have gone through experiences that aren't really talked about much. And I want to go back to this, which you said, um, you know, that, that you're trying to write music that isn't just uh, relatable to the, you know, the stereotypical white mustachioed man. And so I want to, I want to highlight um, uh, your song. I don't know where your heart's been, you know, because on, on one, um, for one, it, it can just be taken as, you know, just a, a, a classic heartbreak song. But you know, you're also subverting this country music trope of you know, the wandering, philandering drifter. Yeah. And uh, I will say, like, I love the songs about the wandering drifter, but uh, as someone, I think even like at the beginning, you know, when I was younger, I always thought, well, why can't, I mean, not that I wanted to be like a drifter when I was, you know, a 12 or 13 year old girl, but I think I always had the sense of like, why can't I live a lifestyle similar to men also? You know, why do I feel like I have to be, you know, separate. Like I'm a very independent person. So I, yeah, I kind of wanted to, yeah, flip the script a little bit and you hear all these songs about men leaving women. It's sort of like compulsory, you know, again, it's sort of celebrated like, well, I just can't help it. I'm a road dog. I, you know, I gotta be a drifter. I can't be pinned down. Um, and, uh, you know, my, lovers of sort of collateral damage there. But uh, I didn't want uh, that other perspective to sort of just be lost in history of uh, women being kind of left, left holding the bag, so to speak, of doing all this emotional work of uh, having to get over someone. Um, so yeah, I think I wanted to sort of subtly subvert those stereotypes you hear, especially in the old songs. And again, we're sort of past that period of time and people are making country music from a variety of perspectives now. So I just wanted to add to that um, and uh, also just write a really classic heartbreak song. And the region where country music is made so often colors it and you're living here in Southern California now, but you're originally from Kansas and I lived in the Midwest for some time. So I know it's how different it can be. Yeah. So how does that duality, how has that duality affected the sensibility of your music? Yeah, I feel very, very fortunate to have played, started kind of learning how to be a musician out here in Long Beach. And I think it's funny because people learn it from Kansas and they're like, well, like, why would you move here to 
and play music here. Like, don't people in Kansas love country music? And they do, definitely. Um, you know, there's certainly a market for that there. It's a very um, popular style of music out there because so much of country music is tied to the rural experience and small town life. But at the end of the day, country music is really just about authentic experience. And that can come from anyone and anywhere. And I've been so like thankful to Long Beach, not just because it has such a diverse audience, but it really forced me to understand how I can present my music to make it, or just kind of verify that this is, you know, appealing to a broad variety of people. And I was really surprised by that. You know, I started kind of playing country music and I just thought, people are gonna laugh me off the stage, you know, playing like with like punk bands, playing with uh, other bands in Long Beach. So, you know, there's very few like country and folk bands. Um, and uh, I was like, man, I just don't know if people are gonna get it or if they're gonna care. Um, but I've been just so pleasantly surprised and like so thankful for kind of the community in Long Beach for, um, you know, showing up to shows and, and really supporting my music. I mean, we've played, and I think that it's been really, it was really um, satisfying for me to kind of have to figure out how to play in different places. Like there's like one country music bar in Lakewood. <laughs> it's like the only place to play where you could reach an audience that like is already uh, listening to the style of music. Um, but uh, you know, we, we played a show like at my boxing gym at Long Beach United. We played a show um, at some pop-ups up in like North Long Beach. We've played at farmer's markets. We've played like all these different avenues where people that normally wouldn't interact with this kind of music, you know, um, I was able to talk with and like understand uh, their perspective. And um, I just, I'm just really grateful to have been able to play in front of, learn how to play music in front of a really diverse audience. And it certainly opened up my mind. You know, I grew up in an area that was 95% white, um, certainly didn't have much of an experience with um, other cultures, people of other races, you know, other lifestyles, like until I moved here. And um, it really, really um it was important to me to to be able to champion you know people with different voices in this space because it's so important to diversify what you're hearing in country music and in california i mean i you know you're just so shocked just not not only by the variety of country music but um you know people who are playing it people are going to these shows like it um it's really satisfying to do that in a diverse area and so I know you're also working on a series with uh, KLVP on reproductive rights. Did you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So part of the theme of the album um, is related to reproductive issues that I went through about five or six years ago that really kind of shaped the course of my life. It's sort of the reason I started playing music. I was kind of dealing with the fallout of um, some reproductive issues that uh, were pretty traumatic medically. Um, and uh, Rose at KLBP uh, has, I met her through going to a show. Uh, and so she'd seen me play live before and uh, kind of center the album, you know, as we were um, recording it. And 
she floated the idea of doing a series on women's reproductive issues, but tied back to uh, songs from the album. So um, once I made the decision to sort of talk publicly about the things I had been through um, and how that informed my music, you know, she and I really talked about, wow, it would be, I just kept thinking, man, it would be great if I had had like information or just someone to relate to, like while I was going through um, this really hard medical stuff, like I just felt so alone. And so we started to think, how can we turn this into a radio series um, of uh, really a deep dive into reproductive issues, but on a personal level. And I think when you listen to the songs on the record and when I've sort of talked about um, the experiences that I've had in my life, I always come back to like, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to change someone's mind, but I, it's about humanizing, you know, these experiences that women go through. Um, and that's what I've tried to do through song is just bring this perspective to the forefront that people wouldn't normally be exposed to. Um, and, you know, talk about what I've been through personally um, as a way for people to understand what it's like to, to have to make reproductive choices and, um, you know, what that, what that really looks like for, for an individual. And it can take, you know, that can take many forms that can involve many different types of emotions. And it's not just what is talked about in the news. Uh, so we are crafting this radio series um, to talk about some of those issues and really just relate to it back on a, on a personal level. Um, and hopefully that'll be out uh, later this summer. So we're working on uh, the content right now. And we're going to hear a live rendition of one of your songs. Um, it's titled Wurlitzer Prize. Um, did you want to say a little bit about the song? Yeah, that's actually a cover of uh, Waylon Jennings' song, um, which I love. I mean, it's just such a, it it encapsulates everything that is perfect about country music. There's like, I don't know, probably like 25 words in the whole song. It's very simple. It takes a very simple concept of someone reliving all of the places that they've been with a, with an ex-girlfriend or, or a past lover and uh, just really torturing themselves over how awful it is of those memories and just reliving them. Um, but such a simple song, simple concept. Um, so I love to cover that song. And uh, um, yeah, so hope you guys enjoyed the, the live rendition I did with my pedal steel player, uh, George Madrid, who is also based here in Long Beach. Here's Katie Joe playing Wurlitzer Prize. Same old songs, missing you 
surprise for all the silver I let slide down the slot Just singing those songs so blue They help me remember you I don't want to get over you That was Katie Joe playing Wurlitzer Prize. Her album Pawn Shop Queen drops on April 9th, and you can pre-order it right now on Bandcamp. That's all the time we have this week, folks. Thanks for listening. My name is Kevin Flotus, editor at Forth.org, and you've been listening to Back and Forth on KLVP 99.1 FM on Beach Public Radio. Take care.